0: My name is
1: Eamon Murtar, but you probably guessed that. Welcome to What Goes Around. My name's Deb Grant. Also welcome.
0: Mmm. Yes, we're both welcome. And so is Cherie Percy, the brilliant authoress who has brought us a new book on the 33 and a third uh, series of books about music. And this time, the focus is on the fantastic New York group
1: ESG. We'll also be travelling to Berlin to speak to a former DJ, now writer, called Paul Hanford, who talks about his experiences of coming to Berlin, retiring from DJing and meeting a load of interesting people.
0: And we've got the fabulous John Robbins of Radio 5 Live fame and my favourite Friday afternoon show on that particular station. And of course, a famed and well-respected presenter and comedian. Who is also jolly good company and has excellent taste in music? Does he not?
1: He does. Big Zappa fan, which uh, gets my approval. But it's quite a quite an emotional conversation, actually. I'm looking forward to uh, sharing it with the listeners. Shall we? Shall we pod?
0: Well, let's let's do some emotional podding.
1: <laughs> pod. <laughs>
0: Somewhere deep in the workshop of life, there sits Deb Grant, and I'm here to ask her, what goes around amongst the builders of insanity?
1: I am taking the workshop at the moment. I don't know what they're doing out there, because I've had my blinds down for the past several mm. months since they've been out there, but they're doing a lot of crashing and banging today. <laughs> um, yes, it's very atmospheric and not stressful at all. Um mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you about a reissue of a documentary, which perhaps you saw the first time around. Mm. I noticed that it had been re-released at the cinema by the BFI and I was in London and none of the dates worked for me. And then by pure serendipitous chance, I happened to be in Manchester and at a loose end uh, one afternoon, a few weekends ago, and I went to see it at the cinema. It's called Dance Craze and oh uh, yeah.
0: yeah did yeah. you see it the first time around I think it was out in like 1980 or something so I'm not sure I, I saw it when it was first to be, but I've definitely seen it I saw it at some stage and yeah, uh, yeah the two tone uh, revival thing and uh the tour that the specials and madness and yeah that so it's, it's
1: basically it's filmed at several different venues and it's just a lineup of um and two-tone bands i mean there's some there's some lowlights as well as highlights bad manners mm-hmm. i kind of wish didn't exist um <laughs> you know well,
0: i've got great bad manners a trivia fact you'll love this so oh, go on so uh, Buster blood vessel like when when he was like on his low ebb and the, you know the band weren't touring anymore and all that sort of stuff he's kind of needed a bit of money um, he applied for a job in a Bad Manners tribute band <laughs> and they didn't give him the job because they said he wasn't fat enough.
1: <laughs> that's amazing. Um, wow. Oh, my God. That's that's just like heartbreaking for him on super, so many levels. Super that's amazing. But tell, us about,
0: t- tell us about Dance Craze, though. Sorry, I digress.
1: Um, oh, it's so brilliant. I mean, it just, you know, you can listen to his ska and music of that ear and I think I've said before, like, One of the first cassette albums I ever bought with my own money, if not the first, was like a Madness album. So that music means a lot to me. And Mm -hmm. as we've discussed before on this podcast, you know, Madness really stand up as such a great band. The specials, too. Um, But the way this documentary is filmed, they have camera people on the stage. And obviously you're seeing the band's. Um, fucking hell the selector amazing performance mm. too but also the crowd um, is captured as well all the young people and the fashion like so you feel mm. really really immersed in it and the energy of the live performance is just captured really well it's such a I just it really there's a kind of weird uh, interim bit in the middle where they sort of show a load of archive footage about People like kids learning to ballroom dance, which might have been more relevant the first time around when that documentary mm. first came out. Um, But I just loved it. And immediately I just wanted to go out and and buy a load of suits and only wear suits and slacks <laughs> and maybe a little fedora hat, although I'm not sure how well yeah. I could pull that off. Yeah,
0: that, that film is brilliant. The, the, the energy of it all. I think it's, um, you know, it's a it's a it's a history thing, really, because. The time is really important there. It was like late seventies, early eighties, and it had just been a generation and a half maybe since the windrush boats came over and you know and all of this West Indian influence came into our cities um and it had all that horrible racial tension that was going on and it you know it was it was serious in those days. I can remember like you know seeing. Proper skinheads and, you know, with Nazi m- stuff going on and saluting and shouting stuff about the town. Like, I remember seeing that for real in my town and thinking, bloody hell, this is dark. Do you know what I mean? But then, and this is the important thing, this fresh generation of kids just went, screw that. Do you know what I mean? And they came together in this beautiful way. And I, I, I don't know if you know Coventry as a city, but, um, you know, it was... It was a mess in the in the early 70s, and it managed to find an identity. And it, you know, it's so proud that it became this epicenter of two-tone, you know. And there, were, there was stuff going off in other parts of the city, especially London with madness and all that sort of thing. But, you know, in those days before internets and all that sort of thing, you know, this scene pops up here and then they find out that madness exists in Camden, and then they get together and do this incredible tour and go and see all these different parts of the country. and the music is so infectious the fashion is so cool and the energy that is brought by all of those things coming together, you know, it literally lasts, it lasts forever. It's, it's still exciting to watch. And when you were talking about it, it must've been 10 years since I last saw it, but I was like just little hairs going up on on my arms, just thinking, yeah, God, that was great. That wasn't it. And you're right about the cameras on the stage are really important in it because so often you get, um, what we try and do in this podcast is talk about music but from a fan's point of view we're not really talking you know we're not just going to sit there and go oh lovely music blah 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 clever people and we do a bit of that but we also talk about what it means to be the person listening to it and that that is kind of our raison d'etre and I think when you've got the cameras on the stage you A see the crowd and how much it means to them and what they're doing and how they're trying to change their world by the way they move and the way they interact with each other And you also see those bands and they're so young. Yes, oh my God, Terry Hall looks like he's about
1: 18 or something. God he's impossibly hot yeah yes I know impossibly beautiful hot. absolutely beautiful. so is Sog's actually they all are yeah. I fancied yeah, yeah. I fancied everything you know <laughs> with cer- even... certain exceptions <laughs> I fancied pretty much everyone on that stage
0: what even Jerry Dammers and his toothless grin of scariness
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure I mean it depends what he's wearing but yeah
0: oh absolutely brilliant documentary and uh, yeah I, I can see why that would have an effect on you
1: you know another thing that was really noticeable both in the bands and in the crowds was the fact that it was men and women playing this music and it all seemed very equitable uh, you know yeah. like um they had uh oh what was the name of the band Pauline Black who's absolutely incredible and just owns the yeah. stage Body Snatchers as well uh, all female yeah, group Rhoda
0: Dakar and all that stuff yeah I mean, and you know and also even even at the later stages you've got uh, sort of even Banana Armor and the, and the Fun Boy 3 coming together sort of afterwards I don't know the whole thing was a, a time when there was a little bit, there was a lot of breaking down of race and there was a bit of breaking down of, of the, the sexes as well. And it was a really positive movement. Now I've talked to, um, Pauline Black and Jenny Bellstar, who is in, in that kind of era as well. And they both said, although that was true, it was hard. Mm. You know, they were, they were hanging around laddie lads um so I, you know it, it was it was a difficult trip for them but they did it you know they broke that mold and um certainly i think uh, you have to take your hat off to all those um brilliant sharp women of that scene that just made so much great music yeah and yeah fabulous the fashion was unbelievable i could never get into that because i just i, I could never be that neat <laughs>
1: I, I, I mean that's the thing I'm allergic to ironing so it might not last long
0: <laughs> yeah totally and how do you dance in loafers I just I don't think I mean you can do it in the dockers maybe but that's a bit clod heavy I don't
1: know no we need to yeah. we need to study this documentary forensically and figure mm. that out
0: mm. well I'd happily watch that again let's get some popcorn in There are some bands that achieve success and then disappear from the national consciousness almost completely and then there are some bands who never make a dent on the mainstream and yet their influence grows over the years to elevate them higher than they ever would have been during their supposed heyday. ESG are one of these enigmatic bands that made music so startling that the world really wasn't ready for them at the time but since their inception in the 80s Their reputation has grown to legendary status, and their influence can be felt today through bands like the Yeah Yeah Yeahs and countless hip-hop acts who have sampled their genius. So we should be really grateful to Cherie Percy for writing up the brilliant account of ESG's seminal underground classic, Come Away With ESG, on the ever-entertaining 33 and a Third book series. Welcome to What Goes Around, Cherie.
2: Hello, thank you for having me. Well, it's a real pleasure to have
0: you and especially to have you on to talk about this great, great record that um, has had an enormous influence on the music scene, but still is one of those sort of overlooked classics that a lot of people might not know they know, but they might have heard samples of it or versions of it or just felt the the reverberations from (laughs) from this record because it, it really is an underground classic. Can you tell us a little bit about who ESG were and where they come from?
2: Absolutely. So, ESG were um, the Scroggins sisters. There was four of them um, in the original lineup. So that was Renee, Valerie, Deborah, and Marie. And um, they kind of came to being through. They grew up in the South Bronx. They lived in the projects, um, just mm-hmm. by St. Mary's Park. And that area at the time was quite notorious for the crime that was going there. Um, our listener might reference the fact that the Bronx was burning, like that was a lot of the headline material at the time around that um, borough in New York and so Helen Scroggins, their mother, gifted the her daughters with instruments in a bid to kind of keep them safe and off the streets. Um, a few of their other siblings had already kind of joined gangs and mm. they're involved in drug use and stuff so yeah, it's a beautiful story and I think Renee, when I first interviewed her, I've interviewed her a couple of times now, spoke a lot about the fond that the family would sit around and and watch like Don Kirkner on the TV and proper talent shows, Mm. uh, like the Jackson family as well Uh, and that's where the idea came from really, for them to start to to perform initially performing covers of things like James Brown, she talks about Mm -hmm. and then there's a a lovely line from Renee where she says she was so into the bridge the idea of James Brown taking it to the bridge she just wanted to write a song that sounded like the bridge for the whole time (laughs) (laughs) which I think you can hear in their their tracks
0: Yeah, most definitely, I mean there they really are an interesting uh, prospect because uh, there is a, like a, a a very catchy pop edge to them but they never quite caught on on the mainstream and yet everything they did seemed to chime right across the board on the underground dance scene especially in new york How, why do you think their their sound sort of worked itself so flawlessly right across the whole mm-hmm. of, of of the the scene at the time
2: yeah, it's really interesting. And, and not just the scene, but as I say in the book, almost like four decades, like this record is celebrating mm. its 40th anniversary this year. And in that time, I feel like there is ESG sound sort of permeates multiple decades. Mm. Um, and I try and touch on some of that in the book as well about the fact that when they started in the early 80s in the South Bronx, this group of young black sisters are actually making a sound that's quite an anomaly to the rest of their peers who are creating hip hop and that Mm. whole scene coming out of the Bronx. So that, that flows on. And as you say, there may be a bit of an anomaly at the time in their scene against particularly other sort of um, new wave peppy bands like Blondie and Talking Heads in New York at the time. And then they go on to influence the 90s with a lot of hip hop artists sampling their stuff, as you mentioned, into the noughties with bands like the AAAs. Yeah, yeah, um, James Murphy from LCD Sound System has kind of heralded them up. Um, there as well. Even La Tigre, Kathleen Hannah references them as a bit of a, a, an influence as well um, but but never making the mainstream and that's one no. of the points I make at the end of the book actually that now that people have picked this book up as part of the series and I'm so honoured that it joins the ranks of 33 and a third yes. that now they're kind of let into this best secret, this secret of ESG and hopefully that gives them a bit more of a spotlight that they've deserved all along.
0: And there's a really curious link to England and Manchester <laughs> yes. and the whole, the whole factory records thing. Yes. Tell us a little bit about how that happened, because I don't know, but I've, I've heard rumours that basically Martin Hannett was asked to record them in New York and literally had like five minutes spare on yes. the end of another tape. And that's what made it back over to England. Can you tell us a little bit about the yeah. connection between factory and ESG?
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting one and, and it kind of ties to your last question because actually, even though they might have seemed like an anomaly in New York, they actually found quite a, a welcome home in North England in Manchester's mm-hmm. sort of post-punk scene and yeah, there was a lot of cross... Um, proliferation, I guess. Like Tony Wilson of Factory Records was sending some of his bands, like a Certain Ratio, over to New York, who ended up sharing the bill with ESG at one of the venues in New York called Dance, Dance Real, which sadly isn't um, mm. active anymore. But yeah, they um, they notoriously opened. Tony Wilson flew them over to open the club night, the hacienda club night, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I recently rewatched. Twenty four hour party people, and sadly, Steve Coogan doesn't reference that in the film. No. <laughs> but um, they were there. They opened that night. No one knew who they were. And actually, I did uh, I did speak to Peter Hook for the book because I wanted to get some of his impressions of that time and hear more about the hacienda. And he he said, you know, it was it was mainly Tony just being absolutely in love with New York and wanting to bring over some of that sound to Manchester but likewise I guess get getting his artists over into the New York scene as well so it was a distribution deal that they ended up doing because ESG were on um, 99 Records which Mm. was a kind of Infamous Brooklyn label run by Ed Bolman, and they set up a distribution deal for the um, EP with uh, Factory Records. So he was, yeah. They were one. I think they might have even been one of the first US acts to come out on Factory Records. Yeah,
0: they, yeah, they definitely were. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, and certainly, I, like, one of the first sort of black female bands to come out as well, for sure.
0: <laughs> possibly the last,
2: I think. The maybe. only, yes, <laughs> that's right.
0: <laughs> Unless we go all the way to Cleopatra, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. don't think they grace Factory, but yeah, same area. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, it's a really interesting thing, the way that, um, you know, the Martin Hannett's recordings as well, are, are, you know, are, are very famously, like, yeah. minimal and austere and actually the their music had that quality anyway even without him being involved right. but it had that kind of um the space that you require for really great dance music so when you amplify it on a big system there is there's air to be shifted about and it it makes the dance floor come alive so they really had something that uh, as you say was very much at an angle to everything else that was yeah. that was going on at the time you touched a little bit about the um the influences they had. Um, what, what do you think their main sort of legacy would be now? How would, how would you characterise, you know, if someone said, well, what did they do? How would you characterise this, their lasting success?
2: The thing that's really sad about it is that often it's easier, and a lot of the press has been around, um, because it's quite a fractious band, and it's actually only Renee Scroggins, band leader now, who is one of the original members in Mm. the group, and they are still performing. They're heading over to the UK um, this summer as well. But so a lot of the, as is customary with the press, a lot of the UK press and the States press is often around the kind of family internal disputes of yeah, the band. Yeah. Whereas actually, I think, you know, as we've said, the legacy sits with all of those other countless lightning rods in modern music who have taken ESG, people like... Um, James Murphy people like Karen O who's also in the book talking about um, they actually performed with ESG in twen- 2009 in New York and they say you know Karen talks about the yeah yeah yes just wouldn't have been the band that they are today without bands like ESG mm. but I think it takes those people to, to talk about them, to get that name out there again, because it is really under the surface. It's very much a cult band. Yeah. Um, and and that's why I really hope being part of this series kind of illuminates them for, even further to a wider audience.
0: Well, I'm sure it will, because um, for those that don't know, this uh, series of books, 33 and a Third, they are really exemplary. I, I mean, just they, they take one album or one particular incident at a time and just... Go through that album, you know, tell you the backstory, give you some of the sort of wider context of why that music is important. And even if it's not music that you're particularly into or familiar with, it's always a really interesting read. And it must be lovely to, to actually get your name on that list of, of great books that, that have, have come out in that series.
2: It's absolutely wild. Yeah, I still can't quite believe it. I got some copies through in the post. And um, yeah, it's crazy to see it. Um, I'm doing a couple of launch events around the book's release as well. So it will just be such a novelty three years in the making to, to see people handling the book and hopefully enjoying the story as well. Because I think that's the thing as much as this series is based on the album esg have such a wider story so i think readers will notice that i've gone quite deep into as you say the north england's manhattan connection there the 99 record story because that's fascinating in itself there's just there's a lot around esg that i felt needed to be told
0: <laughs> well i'm really glad you are you are bringing it uh, to the fore because i think it's one of those records that You know, it will bring a lot of joy to a lot of people. And it is one of those things, you know... As a DJ, I'm always kind of like shuffling around, looking for something interesting to play. And, you know, sometimes people ask you, why do you do it? Why, why? Yeah. you know, because obviously, <laughs> I'm obviously not making money at it, but why <laughs> do you keep doing it? And the reason is because of groups like ESG that you find yeah. occasionally and you can just spread that love and pass that on to someone. And, you know, I can hear from your voice the enthusiasm you've got for this. And that's what that series does so well. I always liken the 33 to thirds to... Um, so there's like revision books you used to get for like yeah it's <laughs> like a
2: cliff's Notes yeah, yeah because you get exactly you get all
0: it. the important information in a nice <laughs> yeah. handheld size so i love that series and i can't wait to get stuck into your book thank you so much for talking to us today about it and thank you with it.
2: thank you so much and um yeah i hope everyone enjoys both reading and listening to esg the might of esg i'm
0: sure they will <laughs>
1: Very pleased to welcome Paul Hanford to the podcast. He's written a beautiful book called Coming to Berlin, all about well, Paul, it's about your relationship with Berlin essentially, where you now live. Am I right?
3: Yeah, and and also the relationship of of other people as well. But what I did is I wrote it from the perspective of people that have also, like myself, come from other parts of the world, or maybe even just Other parts of Germany, but certainly other parts of the world and their experiences, because as someone that's always enjoyed writing and talking about music and and myself moving to Berlin, there was this kind of natural instinct to think, I'd love to sort of explore this maybe as a book. Um, But I also had like a massive sense of imposter syndrome that, you know, (laughs) who am I, like this this English guy to write about someone else's culture when there's plenty of people in Berlin that could be, that grew up here that could be writing about it. But I I kind of realised that it is a very international city, you know, and, and becoming an international myself, I found a lot of common ground with a very vast spectrum of culture and people from different places that have all at various points in their life come to the city for very similar reasons to the, to the reason I had really. So the book is basically about the lives of people who've discovered the city really mm. through music.
1: How did you go about um, finding people who you thought would be interesting subjects for the book?
3: Well, I think because I'd been living in Berlin for three and a bit years before I started writing. so. Um, a lot of it just came out of the accumulation of lived experiences, really. So, for example, uh, Mark Reeder, the chap Mark Reeder that appears in a couple of chapters, he's a very influential figure here. And he, um, he was one of the first Brits to move to Berlin in in the late seventies and, um, at the time he was working for Factory Records. Well, he wasn't working for them, he was kind of like a cohort of Factory Records, and he brought Joy Division over for the first gig in the late 70s and then he kind of got influenced into the whole techno culture as well when when that happened 10 years later. He was already someone I kind of knew. I'd met him a couple of times and I'd bump into him in cafes and he's just generally known as a local legend really. And also just from being involved in music here and the culture around it, I kind of had three years of figuring out without me even intending to know I was doing it, to know who would be brilliant to write about, really. So when it came to writing, it was just, it was more like I couldn't wait to start on each chapter and go, brilliant, I'm going to write about this person next.
1: And it must have been so satisfying to know, because I'm sure, like, seeing these people around the city... It must be so tempting to want to sit them down and sort of ask them about their story and get into a sort of deep <laughs> conversation with them. It must be nice to have that excuse.
3: Absolutely, definitely. And I, I think, you know, there's so much that has happened in Berlin that has been quite historical on a global scale. And mm. a lot of the people I spoke with have lived through very, very turbulent times in, in, in European history, and but living it through music. So it was so fascinating to be sat Sometimes like in a cafe whilst people be talking to me about the experiences they had at a time where where we'd be sat would be forbidden. You know, Mm -hmm. like I meet someone in East Berlin and we'd be having a coffee or having a stroll where... Maybe it was just along the side of, of the Berlin Wall or, or in a cafe that wouldn't have existed where the idea of being able to have like a, an oat flat white would have, <laughs> <laughs> would have just been, you know, just, what, alien? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that was only like, you know, that was, that was only 30 years, just over 30 years ago that stopped. So to put that in context, that was, that was only two years after, I don't know why I thought of this example, it's a really random one, it's only two years after Terminator 2 came out. <laughs>
1: But it's an interesting juxtaposition because it's like something slightly whimsical with something incredibly mm. serious. And like, mm. can we wind back a little bit and talk about your past a little bit? Because one of the ways that you've, I've seen you frame your relationship with Berlin is that you're one of the only people who came to Berlin to stop DJ. <laughs> can you give me a little bit of context for that?
3: Sure. Well, I'd, I'd become a DJ in London mm. for maybe a decade before I moved to Berlin. and And I think like, a lot of people, I, I had these kind of grand ambitions to be like a really cool techno DJ like Daniel Avery or, or Hi, or, or someone really amazing like that. But instead, what I found was I would be doing, it was still a lot of fun, but I'd, I'd End up playing a lot of hotels and, and shops mm. like uh, the big top shop in oxford circus oh, and, yeah. and things like that and a lot of events and a lot of it was very fun but you know you, you end up sort of you're playing more music on request really mm. and and you know so there was a point where i wasn't sick of playing um, I'm trying to think of what was, what you'd always get. You'd always get asked for Mr. Brightside. You know? <laughs> oh <yes>. nothing <laughs> a, yeah, nothing changes. Yeah. nothing changes. <laughs> and you, you could just time it. You could kind of see the person Drive. walking from across the hotel lobby, go, they're going to ask for Mr. Yeah, Brightside. Exactly. I know it. And so um, that kind of became my, I kind of realized I'd become very, uh, like, detached from my love of music, really, by playing Mr. Brightside.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So many of us have had the same experience around that exact same track. I know. It
3: it was very much like kind of coming to a city where everyone is a DJ, but I'm like finito. That's it. I'm done. I'm done.
1: (laughs) Wow. So you weren't tempted to try and continue your DJ career after you moved to Berlin?
3: Well, I do, you know, I, I've been playing a little bit in, in a couple of bars that I have a couple of residencies in, but it's very low key and it's oh, just not. Just a couple
1: like, of residencies. Yeah, just,
3: just a couple. Don't, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I, it's not really something I used to be able to pay my bills with, you know, yeah. where that'd be my main way of paying bills. Now it's more like for the love of it again, which is really nice. Like one playside play is plays called dream baby dream giving it a little plug and it's got a little mention in the book as well and and it has amazing cocktails and the music policy is it's just like cold wave industrial, Stuff like that, so there's, there's no chance of Mr. Brightside unless Froppy <laughs> and Gristle got, got back together and did a, re,
1: did a remix. Oh, please yeah. let that happen. I hope so. I hope someone hears this and makes that happen. And I've been there once, a long time ago, mm. um, and I didn't really experience that much of the nightlife. But the way that I've heard you describe it, you do make it sound like this incredibly sort of open, open-minded, hedonistic place. Mm. Is that accurate? I,
3: I think it can be, definitely. And I think there's there's an opportunity for it to be here. I think after the reunification I, the, 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 when the wall came down, it was very much the way the city came together was through you know that happened at exactly the same time as rave culture mm. sort of began developing, an acid house culture, and at the same time as as the uh, the, the use of of, of certain mind mind altering substances mm. as, a, as party dancing devices. Mm-hmm. And 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 this all happened at the same time as a lot of space became available in the city. Like people would leave East Berlin, like just pack up and leave. And so there'd be empty spaces where people put on parties and and so the the whole idea of, of music and culture and free thinking existed here beforehand, like in the nineteen twenties, the Weimar and, and, and stuff and and various other points. But it really galvanised and became, uh, I I guess, like what the city's known for and what the city holds close to its heart as a, as a sort of a a cultural church, Mm. I guess, after that. And so that sort of the belief systems around that uh, about dance culture have kind of really embedded into the city. So it does provide, if that's what you want, the opportunity to live like that or more like that i'd say than in other cities but at the same time as that we do have gentrification and we do have rising rents and it's also a city of over four million people so you know there's only a portion of people that live like this there are there are many many people that do that. you know that's that's not their thing at all you know
1: when you say the belief systems of that Mm. kind of music how do you define that
3: I guess it's like um there's a sort of utopian idea about the dance floor, isn't there, of mm-hmm. like a, a free space and whether or not that that is actually always a reality um or more like an ideal that is embedded into the culture here, so it kind of extends in strange ways across the city and you know it, and it so you, you know, you, you people will strip off in a in a park if they want to, you know, or, or like run naked into a into a, a lake, and, and it's not a problem. Or you can still smoke in bars most yeah. of the time. And there's also like a kind of a resistance to more or less degree, although that is quite tense at the moment uh, against sort of neoliberal culture. So a lot of cafes don't accept cards. And so you do have to kind of get cash out a lot, which yeah. which I actually think is quite nice, really. You know I, know, I know it makes a lot of practical sense to have a card, you know, pay for everything on a card. But I think doing things that are sometimes like not out of convenience kind of puts us in, you know, to me anyway, puts me in contact with maybe more of, the system around how things function and work really you know we don't become blasé to you know uh, like modern modern neoliberalism really yeah. although that does exist here you know there's yeah. loads and loads and loads of delivery services and <laughs> but you do have the opportunity to explore your freedom in that kind of way
1: yeah yeah one last question if you were to build your perfect night out in berlin where would it start and end and what would happen in between
3: oh my gosh okay (laughs) i guess it would probably start with some really nice food with a small group of friends Mm -hmm. like maybe just two other friends you know i think that's another thing about clubbing here is it's really nice to go with a very small group of people you know it's not like a Going out with ten people, all of the lads kind of experience. Yeah. You know, it's it's uh, have a, like a very very nice, very calm meal. Um, maybe go to a spa
4: Ooh.
3: afterwards. Uh, we have a really good spa culture here, which particularly in the winter is just fantastic. You know, the like, coming out of a sauna and suddenly being hit by snow is yeah. just this kind of. It's like a sort of sweet and sour kind of. It's right. it's the sweet spot kind <laughs> of thing, and then a bar. Um, in a part of Berlin called Neukölln, um, which has a good variety of bars, then yeah, maybe about three in the morning, go to a club. I mean, I'm sure many of your listeners would have heard of Bergheim, which is you know obviously Berlin's most famous one, but there's a lot of variety here of, of clubs. And then yeah, and then and then sometime late on Monday, kind of just wind down into a ball, really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> i love that this is this is obviously the, uh, the one of the privileges of freelance life as well monday is for just rolling up into a ball after a big weekend oh
3: absolutely and then just just you know, have that moment where you kind of have a sudden hor- horror and go oh my god if i got free zoom meetings tomorrow and then <laughs>
1: yeah back to life um yeah Paul Hanford thank you so much congratulations again on the book coming to Berlin. Thank you so much Dan thank pleasure. you Pleasure pleasure speaking to you
0: What we're going to what we're going to what we're going to do right here is go back Way back back into
4: time Do it much. That's right name that tune Name that tune
1: Today's guest is both an Edinburgh Comedy Award-winning comedian and an Aria Gold Award-winning broadcaster, a DJ, a writer and a TV regular. His weekly radio show with Ellis James has become a cult classic since launching in 2014, pivoting from XFM to BBC Radio 5 Live and picking up awards and accolades along the way. He hosts several podcasts, ranging in subject matter from golf, to Queen, to pubs, to mental health, and you've likely caught his warm, witty, eccentric stand-up comedy everywhere from Mock the Week, to Live at the Apollo, to Drunk History. Today though, I'm very pleased to say that he is with us in his capacity of committed music nerd, John Robbins.
5: Welcome to What Goes Around. Hey, thank you so much. That was a very kind introduction.
1: Oh good. Was everything all, usually there's one red herring in there somewhere that we don't realise. Was
5: that all accurate? Uh, I'd say sort of TV regular might be pushing it a bit. Um, Not according to your website, John. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, the sort of party line, because I have to sort of, I'm like an MP who's been hauled out in front of the uh, press to sort of justify the fact I've said I'm a TV regular. Sure you know we we're just looking forward we're not thinking um about the past uh, because we are a progressive comedian and um we just want to we want to regain the central ground and that's sure. what people want yeah yeah fashion. we're
0: not going to get a straight answer out of this guy
5: all no all exactly
1: but speaking of being pro- progressive you're off on tour very soon um and i'm curious because the last time i spoke to you we had a conversation about comedians and the music that they pick for um, the interval of their show or for when the audience are kind of arriving before they go on stage. We talked about a lot of different comedians picking uh, picking jazz. Um, I know Stuart Lee likes a bit of Coltrane. When I saw Dylan Morin, um, he had Chico Hamilton. And I'm curious if you have been uh, pedantic about kind of deciding what music you're going to have in those points in the show.
5: Yeah. And there's sort of two two strings to that bow really i mean one you need music that gets people slightly energetic but Mm -hmm. doesn't sort of bang them over the head Mm -hmm. it's more the volume of it it has to be loud enough so that people raise their voices when they're sitting down but not so loud that they can't speak Mm. so you have been been pedantic about it
0: (laughs) (laughs) right in the fader yeah
5: yeah quite often at venues I will say to, like, the sound tech, I'll say, oh, you, can you just bring it down a notch or mm. bring it up a notch? And then you can feel that buzz in the room mm. start to go. And I've, I've made mistakes in the past, especially when I was starting out in Edinburgh, of just picking songs I wanted people to hear mm. as, as as if to go, oh, I'm really cool. Mm. This is the sort of music I listen to. So if you like this music, you'll like me. Well, that just alienates the 99% <laughs> of the audience who don't like that sort of music. Mm. Um uh recently, I think when I did Darkness of Robins that was a lot of car seat headrest mm-hmm. uh, because that was sort of it was like angry and energetic without being sort of like playing metal to people mm. Mm. and then this last time around've been playing a lot of Ezra Furman, which has just got is i think that's like perfect walk in mm. music yeah that's
0: quite quite jaunty isn't
5: it in any way yeah jaunty but it's There is, it's like got real bite to it in places, Mm. especially the more recent stuff. Um, But also when I start to think about what the show will be about, thinking about what music I want to walk on and walk off to does play a part in that. A bit like coming Mm. up with the title of the show and creating like a mood and an atmosphere in in the room. So I I do enjoy that bit because... There's very little pressure. It's not like writing an hour and a half of stand-up. It's just thinking, what great song do I want to hear when I say goodnight?
0: We had uh, Marcus Brigstock on, who... uh... One of his choices was uh, The Cure. He was very, very into The Cure, especially when he was younger. And he said that um, for the last sort of 10, 15 years, he had been trying and thinking about and daring himself to use "Plain Song" by The Cure as his intro music. But he loved them so much, he felt he'd only let them down. <laughs> Which I thought was wow. lovely. You know, like, just like, I want to play it, but I, I won't live up to it. I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be overdone by my own theme music. <laughs>
5: Well, I already, even though I haven't written the second half of my tour yet, tickets are available,
4: mm-hmm.
5: I already know the song I'm going to walk off to and I know at what point in the song it's going to kick in and that's sort of, that's like the foundation upon which I'll build everything else. I
0: like that. I like that. By the way, if you hear a tiny crew of gnomes tapping away, I think uh, Deb has uh, decided to... Uh... Broadcast from a building site. Oh my so God, God, I'm so might, sorry. <laughs> might be a little bit of uh, tap tap tap. Can you can you
1: hear that? Intense. I
0: can I can hear that quite quite well now. Really? Oh for god's
1: sake! One of your podcasts, John. I don't think I even realised this—that uh, you're such a huge Queen fan. So much so that you've got an entire podcast about Queen. And yet, out of your phonographic memories, you haven't picked a Queen track. What What is? Uh, can you give a bit of context to this to this love of? Of Queen? Is it the music? Is it the spectacle? The phenomenon of Queen? What is it?
5: Well I think sort of Queen above all other music just when I first heard it when I would have been about ten nine or ten it just felt like it was already inside me. It just felt Mm. like the melody chimed so much with just something in my DNA that it wasn't really a matter of this to say, it's my favourite wouldn't quite be right. Mm. It's just I that I don't. I honestly can't describe it. It's more than so. I wouldn't necessarily say my favourite track was a Queen track or my favourite mm. album was a Queen album. In fact, I wouldn't. Mm. It goes somewhere deeper than that. I first sort of became aware of them when Freddie died because it was all in the news. I sort of began to piece together that my mum had played bits and bobs of Queen when I was growing up. But it's at that point where you don't really underst- you don't necessarily know the difference between the different bands or what you hear because you're never actively listening to music. Mm-hmm. I just for about seven years was completely and utterly obsessed with Queen.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: And really my journey in music has been sort of from starts the minute I started listening to stuff other than Queen, I guess, <laughs> but it did instill in me a, a, a love of melody.
1: Yeah.
5: That and a love of sort of orchestration that flows through a lot of things I like.
1: Yeah. And do you still return to Queen, or do you feel like you've just kind of ingested that and it was kind of a pivot point to get you into other stuff, or do you still listen to it with that kind of warm nostalgic feeling?
5: Well, weirdly, I guess when in, when Ellis and I started doing the radio show in 2014, I was I had all this knowledge of Queen. But it was sort of on the back burner, really. But then he started to sort of tease me about the fact I was in the Queen fan club and he thought it was a lame band to be into. And the fact that I got into Queen when everyone else was into Blur and Oasis. Mm -hmm. So I was this sort of lone voice (laughs) crying in the wilderness (laughs) in sort of 1995, (laughs) trying to convince girls at school that Queen really cool. And I... I decorated all of my folders with Queen stuff while everyone else was doing, like, football and Oasis. (laughs) So it's quite a funny idea going through the 90s with a Queen lens, which was the decade in which they had, I mean, literally nothing going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the Queen fan club magazines from when I joined are hilarious because there's just like the release of a PC game and, and that's about it.
4: <laughs> wow, well, a
0: PC game? <laughs> what was the game? Like, yeah. I, well, I, yeah, now I'm in. Yeah. It's, called, it's, <laughs> called, it's, called,
5: it's called Queen the Eye and right. uh, there's an interview with Brian May that's really badly transcribed where he's talking about how much he loves Doom. <laughs> and, um, so there was sort of an amusing side to it. But we, I, I sort of got back into Queen retrospectively when Ellis introduced this, sort of the character of me as the Queen fan. And then people started sending me loads of Queen stuff, some of it quite rare, because I was a collector of Queen memorabilia. I I mean, if I went to a desert island, I probably wouldn't pick Queen because it's just all in my head. Sure, yeah. I could sit down and play a Queen album in my head so it would feel a waste of a choice.
0: Whenever I think about the going away to the desert island thing, there's a a few things that ponder in me. And one of those things is that, yeah, but do I need that? Because that's yeah. already in my head. Mm-hmm. And I always want uh, Lady Day and John Coltrane by Gil Scott Heron. But then if I had that, then I'd want to play Lady Day and John Coltrane straight afterwards. And then that, that's three of my choices gone. And I've completely screwed yeah. <laughs> Desert Island Discs.
1: Yeah, 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 that's good. That's a tactical move. I'm just thinking my, my ex's mum was completely obsessed with Queen. And one time we were going through, after she died, we were going through her stuff and found this embroidery she had done of... Freddie Mercury, who's <laughs> the most oh, wow. gorgeous thing. Oh, lovely. <laughs>
0: Send cool. it to John. I know,
1: it well, to it's too late now. We've broken up. I think I've lost access, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Shall we get into your phonographic memories then and your first choice, which is uh, a track by Godspeed You Black Emperor called Moya. What can you tell us
5: about this one? This was the first time, apart from Pulp, who mm. I, was, I was into Pulp at the time and mm. Pulp were the first band I was into when they were releasing music Mm -hmm. but I remember in sixth form uh, I bought a copy of the NME I probably only bought the NME five times and each time something magical happened and um, I think it was the January the new year issue of NME in 1999 had a CD on the front called Annual Probe Volume 2 it had a lot of musicians on that I'd not heard of who all became sort of part of my late teens. Uh, So there's Mercury Rev and Arab Strap, Third Eye Foundation, Boards of Canada, Mm -hmm. Jurassic Mm -hmm. Five, and the first volume had Elliot Smith on. And the last track on that was called Dead Flag Blues. And I remember listening to it in the, I think the sixth form common room, and just probably for the first time in my life, having heard, hearing a type of music that I had never heard before. Mm. Mm. And th- it's quite hard really to hear stuff that you can't put in some kind of context or you can't think, oh, that's a bit like that other thing I like, oh, I'll probably like this. Whereas listening to this, it was like, well, this is completely new. Mm. And I bought the EP Slow Riot for New Zero Canada. And that had, uh, two tracks on it, Moya and Blaze Bailey Finnegan the Third, and I put Moya on in my bedroom with uh, my headphones on and i it 's one of the very few times I would say my life changed immediately by listening to a song. Mm. I had never heard anything like it, and also. It was sort of tied up in a lot of other stuff. So my dad moved to Canada when I was uh, seven, and he lives in uh, lived in Montreal, and that's where Godspeed are from. And obviously, it's got Canada in the title. Had this mysterious writing on the front, which is a, a biblical quote in in the Hebrew. And my dad's a very religious guy, and that was sort of part of the reason he he left. And um, it just felt very, it felt quite, mir- um, I can't, the word magical doesn't, isn't quite right. It felt, mm. some, there was something mystical about it. Mm.
4: Mm.
5: But also that song, I mean, it's so intense. Yeah. And, and yet the melody is extraordinary. And I went to see them at the Fleece in Bristol, and to see it live, where they've got, like, a cellist, a couple of violinists, two guitarists, two bassists, a drummer, and they were playing this projection of a guy flipping his keys. And I swear to God, I thought that guy was my dad. <laughs> it was this guy with a big beard, a big sort of uncool uh, overcoat on. <laughs> and I thought maybe that was filmed in Canada. Maybe that's dad. my dad. Of course it's not my dad, but something about that. And then one of the amps exploded and these sparks just burst out of this amp, bass amp. And I went home and I just couldn't sleep. The sound of violins ringing in my ears. and also i was 17 yeah. you know what i mean yeah i mean that's that's prime time isn't it <laughs> it's the sort of age when you don't get those experiences with music as much later in life
1: no it's it's true there's something about discovering stuff like that in your teenage years that feels so serendipitous as if it's found you it's such a magical thing i wonder like you mentioned feeling slightly alienated from your peers around that time because you were so into Queen and everyone else was into Britpop. Did you get your friends into Godspeed around that time as well? Or was this sort of something that was just for you?
5: No, it was, um, It w- there was a group of us. I, I hung out a lot with the kids, the kids in the year above. And there was sort of this, I remember sixth form. I didn't really uh, have a much of a set of friends at, secondary school and then sixth form i discovered just through discovering this sort of music i made friends with uh probably about eight eight or nine people in the year above a a few of them were goths Mm. i i shaved my head and got a mohican i had painted nails i had a studded dog collar and a velvet jacket oh yeah good man and and i just i was almost like overnight i was like okay i feel like i'm somewhere where i fit Mm. and Mm. i found people who are interested in the things i'm interested in who talk about the things i want to talk about who aren't sort of gonna take the piss out of my clothes who are accepting of difference Mm. who aren't constantly obsessed with whether you're gay or not that was like the thing (laughs) at (laughs) school it's weird now because (laughs) that's sort of i well i hope Mm. not as much a part of growing up but it was all like you're gay
1: yeah what yeah.
5: why yeah. it was just it was just the go-to thing yeah Terrible. especially and, um, if you had
0: gothic tendencies yeah you know, i was i was all eyeliner and and nail varnish myself and it was it was it was pretty much like the the opening offer of uh communication from quite a lot of people at school uh, yeah Did i they, remember
5: uh, on no. a non-uniform <laughs> day i wore a tie-dyed metallica just long sleeve t-shirt that that you would look back on now as like quite a 90s bit of clothing. Mm. And I wore this studded dog collar. And like my year went ballistic. (laughs) It was like, it was like I'd come in naked. It was so, I remember this girl coming up to me and saying, are you a raver or a jitter or what? (laughs) And I didn't know what the answer was. So I didn't know what those phrases meant. I just, anyway, so I sort of found my tribe and we listened to godspeed and mogwai i remember hearing uh young team for the first time and just oh man it was a, it was like my brain exploded <laughs> and i never had that feeling with music before
4: yeah.
5: um and then uh you know so through that you get into stuff like siga ross and mm-hmm. uh a silver mount zion mm. you know going to gigs i saw godspeed and Sigor ross at the Trinity Centre in Bristol. And I saw Mogwai at, uh, uh, where would it have been? The, the Academy. And these, um, these
0: are these are properly deep choices, aren't they? Yeah, I
1: mean, this it's is, very sophisticated. This isn't like heard, like seventeen know. eighteen. Yeah.
0: you know, like a, a lot of people try and, and find something that kind of separates them out and helps them find their crowd or whatever. But I, I would say most of the time, It's something immediate, you know, and kind of uh, and and perhaps that you could sing along with or you could, you know, at least, you know, pogo around to. But, you know, you can't you can't have like a thumbnail visit to Godspeed you back emperor. You can't say, well, I'll give it two minutes. You know, that thing that Nile Rodgers says, like, don't bore us, hit us with the chorus. Well, Godspeed don't even kick in until like 12 minutes into the track. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, you you sound like a very deep, thoughtful kind of kind of kid, really.
5: Well, I think it's like the the music matches the intensity of your emotion at the time. Mm. And I was, you know, constantly falling in love with girls. I wrote a lot of very, very bad poetry. <laughs> I was that kind of kid, very sort of isolated at home in my, just in my bedroom, reading, reading a lot of poetry, writing a lot, writing journals and letters to myself, all that kind of crap. And... um it was finally like oh, i could hear what i was feeling in a way mm. and in and you know people were also it's not a million miles away from like nirvana if you think about some of the some of the riffs because there are riffs in godspeed there and there are big riffs in in mogwai so there is that sort of way you can hook it into rock but it was it did feel like something totally different and by the time that sort of second wave of post rock, or maybe third wave, because I don't know much—I was never into My Bloody Valentine or the really early mm. post rock stuff. Though I, I really like Sonic Youth. Mm. But by the time stuff like Explosions in the Sky came around, I was sort of, I, I didn't, I didn't grasp onto those newer bands as much. Mm.
4: Mm. Mm.
1: But then. I, I'm presuming this is uh, co- chronological. Is, was it at that point that you started getting into Frank Zappa because the live version of Joe's Garage is your, or Garage, as he'd probably say, is your next choice? Yeah, it
5: would have been around the same time. And I remember uh, I was sort of, one of my first progressions from Queen was Lou Reed solo stuff. Mm. And I was listening to an, an album called Rock and Roll Animal
4: Mm. which
5: is this very proggy, big guitar solo-y... Uh, it was his big return after Transformer and he had this uh, bleached blonde hair. He had sort of aviators. He looked just... I just wanted to look like him so much. <laughs> he had, like, tight T-shirts. I, I think remains the, the coolest-looking musician ever. Mm. Sort of early 70s Lou Reed. I was playing one of these big guitar solos to my friend and he said, oh, if you like that, you'll like Frank Zappa. Mm. And I, I, I heard, heard about Frank Zappa, but the only thing I'd heard was this rumour, which is the first thing he addresses in his book, <laughs> which is that he, he says to someone at a live gig, oh, what's the most outrageous thing you can do? And they take a shit on stage and then Zappa <laughs> eats it. And it's, <laughs> and it's completely untrue. And I don't know where it came from, but that was my fact I knew about him. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought he was some kind of gross sort of goth, like almost Alice Cooper type, yeah. even though there's a big G. connection between Zappa and <laughs> Alice Cooper, because he was the first person to release Alice Cooper's stuff,
4: mm.
5: and anyway this guy, I cut my friend Joe he put on a song I can't remember what it was, but it was just a guitar solo, and again it was the, the other time in my life where I heard something that I'd just never heard mm. the like of before and it was so extraordinary to hear a sort of eight-minute guitar solo that was musically very complex and intriguing and confusing, but also just catchy as hell. Mm. So I went to Imperial Records in Bristol, and I remember all of the sort of back catalogue CDs were five ninety nine, and I went to the Frank Zappa section, and it was just there were probably about thirty CDs. Yeah, yeah. And so all the Frank's People always say to me when I talk about Frank Zappa, they're like, oh, how do I get into it? What should I start with? Mm. I just bought the CDs with the covers I liked. <laughs> um, and I bought the first one, I, I bought absolutely free, and I bought Cheap Thrills, this compilation. Mm. And Cheap Thrills is where I first heard Joe's Garage live. And it's not like, you know, it's not my favourite Frank Zappa song, but it just represents for me that door opening to a world of music that you, ca- you can't really describe because every time I try to describe Frank Zappa it makes him sound awful <laughs>
6: We was playing the same old song in the afternoon. Sometimes we would play it all night long. It was all we knew, and
4: easy to so we wouldn't get wrong. Even if we played
0: it on a saxophone. He's, you know, he's got an incredible range on him, do you know, like he can do. Eight minute searing guitar shows, but he also does like cheeky little two minute doo wop songs and mm. completely non sense making skits and stuff. He's, I mean, he, I mean, a lot of it's almost theatre as well, it's almost like um, musical stuff. Do you know what I mean? So there's a lot of Zappa to get into. I mean, how how far did you go? Are you, did you, are you, are you the full canon, or have you just
5: yeah, I, I had every, I bought every Frank Zappa album, so I think wow. I've got I've got in the region. I haven't caught up as much with the sort of since streaming and stuff because they're quite expensive because they all come mm. out in these sort of ridiculous box sets. But mm. I think I've got about ninety Frank Zappa wow. albums. Wow. I've got all the ones that were released up until about two thousand and five.
0: Hats off to that. That is that's dedication. Uh, that's, well, I, that's I a don't lot know. Lot of Zappa.
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, people have either got no Frank Zappa they've got <laughs> hot rats or so they've got everything he did.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, I'm
5: a hot
1: rats go. <laughs> I was just going to say that's kind of amazing because, you know, I consider myself to be a Frank Zappa fan but I think it's almost impossible to enjoy everything he did. Like, I would imagine that Frank Zappa looks over his back catalogue because, I don't know, the, the, the thing with Zappa I always think is that, like, he just, he had to be constantly making music and I would imagine that he looked back on some of his own back catalogue and wasn't necessarily too enamoured with It was more just like the process of making it was what kept him going. So there must be some in your 90 odd collection that you are not too fond of or you consider to be a bit of like, did you just kind of listen to it out of curiosity or do you genuinely love it all?
5: Well, I'm glad all of it exists. Sure. Yes. Hmm. Diplomatic Um, answer. I wouldn't put on, for example, I wouldn't put on Lumpy Gravy and listen to it all the way through because it's kind of... The bit, the stuff of his I'm not as big a fan of is the sort of music concrete, is that how you say it? Yeah. Music concrete, which is the more like really out there, discordant stuff. But I would say, I mean, half of what, over half of what he does is instrumental anyway. The the stuff with lyrics you can kind of split into satire, songs about sex, (laughs) and songs about music, really. The main reason people don't like him, I think, is because he is sort of 99.99% cynical Mm -hmm. and people don't like the sneer of him. Mm. But, I mean, where else can you go in music for that? I mean, I I recently got quite into Half Man, Half Biscuit and they're quite sneery Mm. and they're quite cynical, but there's a a sort of a joy in it because they're talking about very British stuff that you know. Um, and I think the the music, that, the popular music in the 60s and 70s, which, you know, probably broadly the same now, is a load of guys pretending they're romantic in order to have sex with the women.
0: And <laughs> That's the basis think, of all rock and roll, isn't it? Yeah.
5: <laughs> and I think Zappa cuts through that hypocrisy so brilliantly. Mm. Yeah. And he... I don't think music critics liked him because he was ahead of them and yeah. they like to be the ones telling you what's cool and what's yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. Whereas for him to sort of say at the time, hippie culture is a, is a lie and it's a commercial enterprise as much as anything else, <laughs> I think is really brave and interesting. And also his, his sort of anti-drugs message was so effective on me because I'd had people come into our school and do talks about how drugs were illegal and drugs were dangerous, but no one had ever said drugs are boring <laughs> and people <laughs> take drugs are lame. And that's a much more effective message to a teenager to yeah. go, this is dull.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If
5: you take Coke, you will be the most boring person in the room. Um, so so you're were,
0: you were, you were into this like at a young age too, then this was like a formative thing for you. This wasn't like a, I'm I'm a confident music buyer now, and I'm gonna, you know. I think I'd have probably,
5: I'd have been 16 when I first heard Zappa, and the the vast majority of what I like about him is these very very complex songs that sound like sort of kids TV themes. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a bit like if um, John McLaughlin was writing a a sort of sitcom
0: theme tune.
5: It made me laugh. Is The main reason I picked Joe's Garage is it made me laugh the first time I listened to it and all the musicians are laughing. Mm. I'd never heard music that was designed to make people laugh before. Yeah. Well, he did
4: that
0: whole album, Does Humour Belong in Music? So, you know, see, yeah, I think it was a it was a, quite a lifelong question for him, that, wasn't it?
5: Yeah, and some, sometimes it's just the titles of the songs are funny and the rest of the songs are just sort of joyous. Yeah. But there, I think there is a you know, if you were to listen to um, Roxy and Elsewhere, which is probably my favourite Zapper album, and in my opinion is the most talented group of musicians ever assembled playing the most difficult music, but it's not difficult in an intellectual way. It's not like listening to sort of modern classical music. It is it's joyous rock music. Yeah. But some of the songs, like one of them is called Don't You Ever Wash That Thing. <laughs> That's an instrumental <laughs> song. He had an album entirely composed on the Synclavier, called Jazz from Hell which got a parental advisory sticker because one of the songs is called G-Spot Tornado.
4: I
1: saw, I, so, so I, I went to see, um, this is the thing as well, even the classical music that he made has so much humour in it. I actually went to see Yellow Shark um, being performed. I think it was like the BBC Youth Orchestra or something like that. And you, even like before the, musicians came on stage it's like this big classical setup but there's a fucking banjo there (laughs) and like all of these other weird (laughs) instruments and um yeah, it was supposed to be like uh, there was sort of a Zappa expert sort of giving a, giving a commentary and talking about how, you know, a lot of the music is supposed to be a, a commentary on modern suburbia. And that's exactly what it is. And it is kind of cynical and it is kind of critiquing it. But there's so much humour and joy in it as well. I, I'm, I'm, I, I can't say my, my collection is as extensive as yours, but I'm a huge fan. Yeah,
0: I, it must have been nice as well, though, because one of the things, especially when you're young and you and you find an artist you like, is you know finding out what they think about stuff. You kind of touched on that a little bit, but the, the great thing about Zappa is like man, he had opinions on everything, mm-hmm. and even if you don't agree with what he's saying, it's always fascinating to listen to him talk. He was a real, you know, he he a real great communicator and a real great thinker. And as you say, he he enjoyed being a proper punk, a yippie I guess he would he would class himself as you know someone who liked to to kind of. Press the buttons of society and even his own fans. He would try and wind them up a little bit. Do you know what I mean? And you must have had all this stuff to read as well that comes along with it.
5: Yeah, and I'm often think, I think probably of every musician who died young, Frank Zappa is the one I most wish had lived to a ripe old age. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah because yeah. to have heard his take on the internet on, yeah. on Trump. <laughs> on uh, culture wars, on absolutely everything. And I'm probably sure I wouldn't have agreed with him on everything because he was he was obsessed with democracy and he used to take voter registration booths to gigs. and he, But he was not telling people who to vote for. He was just saying, you if you haven't got skin in the game, yeah. you can't complain about stuff if you don't vote. Mm. And even if both options are awful, even if you spoil your ballot or whatever, I think him I think he would have eviscerated Trump but he was kind of a libertarian I think mm. yeah and he yeah. was pivotal in anti censorship laws but I would like to know the sort of the more current uh debate about free speech which is I don't actually think is a debate about free speech it's a debate about people being assholes because mm. most people who Uh, shout loudest about free speech now are the ones who get most offended by what other people say Mm. and i i think you know frank Zappa's take on for example who's this complete twerp who's just been arrested
1: oh um andrew Andrew tate yeah
5: yeah 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 that sort of person i think I think Zappa would have just destroyed them. Yeah.
1: Well, didn't Zappa have an intention to go into politics like around the time when he got sick? Is, did, am I imagining that? I feel like he was
5: sort of, that was potentially... There is a Zappa for President t-shirt that you've been <laughs> able to get since I'm the 70s. Of. I think he was considering running for president in the way that, you know, some people do. as a sort of Dizzy like, Gillespie, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but he, he testified at the Senate... Or the House of Representative, or something, mm. because uh, Tipper Gore. Yeah.
0: Yes, the PMRC thing. The
5: yeah. PMRC thing. Yeah. So the right to have references to masturbation yeah. and things in songs, yeah, absolutely. and some of his comebacks. to oh. the questions he's asked are absolutely incredible. But then, I'm not. I'm not sure. He, I, would he have survived? you know, to use a phrase that's perhaps more complex than people make out, but council culture. <laughs> because mm. his daughter, I remember, said, you know, my parents brought me a diaphragm when I was 13. <laughs> yeah. And is that... And, I, and she was sort of saying that that wasn't a wholly positive experience yeah, yeah, yeah. You know?
1: <laughs> and he's famous he, for his treatment of women, and you know, his wife yeah. I think is long-suffering and stuff like that yeah, he probably, yeah I'm not sure if he would have been ripped to shreds, quite possibly I mean, he
0: also, he also was cruel to his children because he called them Dweezel and Moon Unit <laughs> <laughs> well,
5: I, Yeah, I think it's hard to, there are some songs that, though I would have played them with glee in the college bar in Twenty years ago, yeah. there are some songs, especially songs about gay people and women, that are hard to really stick up for now.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: As some of them, I mean, the only thing I would say is he had a sort of um, equal opportunities policy to his ire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he would he would call out hypocrisy regardless of your race, ethnicity, or gender, but that's probably as far as I would go defending some of his more problematic songs, let's say.
0: I'm sure he'd be absolutely cancelled every 10 minutes. Mm. But then, you know, because he's so divisive and and so inventive and, you you know, there are some people who you you can't really settle and agree with everything, but you just like to hear them talk. Mm. And I think he's one of those that would, he would always, you know, bubble back up to the surface. I don't think you could, you can't iron it frank Zappa and his sort of personality out of music you can't iron it out because you know he he did so much and as, as you say everything was a was a target for him and so you could find something and say oh, i'm going to pin that on you but then he was so wriggly there would be 10 other th- things you could point to or say well yeah but look at it this way do you know what i mean mm. he was always he was always controversial in in a in a true sense and also in the music you know like look at the musicians he actually sort of brought through people like adrian Ballou in that you know he was looking for people that that did things the wrong way you know and and he wanted to confound expectations every time he put a note down
5: he there's a really good documentary about the history of the mothers with interviews of people from various incarnations of the mothers of invention and they all speak about how brutal it was, the rehearsal process, the performance process. But every single one of them, when they're talking about the time they got the phone call to say their time in the band was up and he'd moved on to something else, they all look so bereft, even <laughs> 40 years hence. <laughs> and for, for fans of in, insanely deep cuts, I've got a DVD called The Drummers of Frank Zappa, which is a roundtable discussion with four or five of his drummers. And <laughs> it's Terry Bozio, Chad Wackerman, uh, Chester Thompson and Ruth Underwood. And it's just <laughs> such a great nerd out. Because <laughs> he, he started as a drummer and his, his drum, uh, his sort of, the, the drum music he writes is insane. The hardest ever drum piece is a Frank Zappa song called "The Black Page," mm. and it's used in a sort of. There are videos on YouTube of graduates from the Royal College of Music playing it as like their final piece yeah. to be marked on. And it's called the Black Page because when he handed it to Terry Bozier, there was so much ink on the, <laughs> on the on the on the music notation that that's that's why it got its name. Wow, I
0: mean, that's that's one of the the marksman as well. It's like it was. It was old school in the fact that he did write this stuff down, you know, and it wasn't like, let's jam out a song. It was like, you know, here is the carefully prepared manuscript. (laughs) Do not deviate. Anyone out of time will be fined $50,
5: you know. If you like Hot Rats, they've just released um, the Hot Rats Sessions. Oh, yeah. Which I think is the best recorded music I've ever heard. Mm. And you can hear the development of those tracks... And some of them are just like half-hour, forty-minute jams that could be released as finished songs. They're insane. Mm-hmm. But the instructions he's giving the the musicians f- feel like you can almost h- hear the the terror in the silence after he said, <laughs> could, "Could you be a little brighter with your left hand?" And you can hear the musician go, "What the fuck does he mean?" <laughs> <I> mean
0: <laughs> Even though I could not. Get halfway through your Frank Zappa collection, if I tried. Um, I admire everything I've ever heard by him because the, you, you can tell the precision and the and the thought that goes into every single piece. So even though it might not be that palatable for me, hats off because I don't know anyone else who could do it.
5: Oh, that's well. It's been an absolute joy to discover him. I mean, when you when you get into an artist and you're like, oh, what album shall I get? And someone says, oh, there's a 90. That's a... Am- <laughs> I love that. I'm not someone who has a super broad taste, but the stuff I do like, I get... I drill down into yeah. so deep that to have that much stuff to discover... I haven't even listened to every song that he's put out. Mm. <laughs> uh, but just go through the 70s chronologically and you'll... Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, that's,
0: yeah, the, yeah, that's yeah. the best idea. Now, yeah. Frank Zappa and Godspeed are both kind of Epic, quite difficult bits of music, quite um, you know involved. I would say, I would say you're a deep motherfucker, if I had uh, had to put a label on you now after listening to those. Aniko Case, Star Witness is your third choice, and uh, this is a much more kind of I would say traditional song. I felt I'd not heard it before, and I, I, I thought it was very pleasant. Tell us a little bit about how you got to this particular track. So,
5: I was. This is sort of just a couple of years later than sort of my Zappa and Godspeed revelations, but I was getting into, I think I watched one of those documentaries about the 60s that used to get on the BBC, and it'd, it'd be like a two-hour-long thing about the birds and um, and the eagles. Mm. And I really got into that post-summer of love return to, like, american grassroots country music mm. the pivotal to which was the band so i got really into the band and then i think in 2000 or 2001 uh, i picked up my best friend from his house in my mini and he put on the album i see a darkness by bonnie prince billy oh, Beauty, and there began a tw- well a now 23 year love affair with with Will Oldham mm-hmm. and what I guess you would call in a very broad sense, Americana. Mm. So through Will Oldham, I found, I mean, I, I you know, it's the seed that has make, make makes up most of the music I listen to today. And I've seen Will Oldham, I think, 18 times. Cool. And I saw him a couple of weeks ago in London. So that will be 20... 20 22 years after I first saw him live. Mm. So through him, I discovered people like Wilco and um, Jim O'Rourke and then Nico Case. And for some reason, and I'll do my best to avoid this, whenever I talk about Nico Case, I get quite emotional mm. because I, there's something about her, the the power and fragility of her songs, which have been so important to me throughout so many years. And her first album, Blacklisted, I would have got when it came out, and that was, I think, 2002, 2003. And then Fox Confessor Brings the Flood, great album title, by the way. Mm-hmm. Came out in 2006, and i just moved out of home. I was living in Bristol with my friends. And it's, I mean, those two albums, they just knock me clean out. Even now, I mean, even talking about it 20 years later, I find it hard to talk about it without my voice going. And Star Witness, which is the the song I picked. I don't know, she doesn't, sometimes her lyrics, what I really like in a sort of folk lyricist, I guess, is to hear a line and think, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. Mm. and to sort of sit with it. I was getting into Astral Weeks at about the same time, Mm. which is probably my Desert Island disc album. Mm. It's a beauty. But to have these songs that you can't quite, there's something about them, you totally get it without quite knowing what it means, but it speaks Mm. to you. Mm. And every single album she's put out, and she's not the most prolific uh, musician, has just been so on the money for me.
6: At 75.
5: There's this video on YouTube of two girls. I can't even describe the video without crying. <laughs> oh, no. Just singing this song in, in a stairwell to raise money, I think, for their sort of music group or whatever. Mm. And one of them's on a ukulele and the other one's just sat there. Oh man, mm. I can't get through it. And someone someone tweeted Nico Case with a video and she just replied with, like, 50 crying. You know the crying emoji where it's yeah. a straight line of tears? It's, yeah. yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah. The, the
0: real deep, I'm upset, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm done for crying.
5: But, but sort of, you know, I'll never know what it would be like to listen to her music as a young girl, mm. but mm. to have a voice of such sort of power, but also you know moments of quite intense femininity but her her box set's called i think it's called truck driver gladiator mule <laughs> <laughs> i fuck i love that yeah there's a great line in from a song on a recent album which is um uh i fucked every man that i wanted to be i love that line yeah <sighs> yeah i think that's incredible yeah. and uh, uh, yeah I just I, she just can't put a foot wrong for me um, That's well I, I've never
0: heard of her before and I'm definitely going to go and search this out now because I think um, I'm sure Deb would agree one of the reasons we like to do this podcast is because there's something like really beautiful about uh, when someone really loves something and uh, getting them to talk about it like I mean you're, you're kind of apologising for bringing the emotion up in your voice and all that sort of thing but that really is that really is a, a wonderful thing, and it's 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 one of the few areas where you can kind of um, when you talk about music and and you talk about music you really love. Um, it's one of the few areas where you can actually reveal a bit of yourself and 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 say quite a lot about yourself without talking about yourself, if you know what I mean. It's like the, if you if you feel that strongly about a piece of music that even twenty years later it brings a lump to your throat then you must have put so much into it. You must have put so much love into into that whole piece of art.
5: Yeah, I I felt a great sense of loss when uh, Apple stopped making iTunes because it had all my play counts on it. Mm. So I I preserved them. I'll never forgive Apple for doing that because iTunes (laughs) was such a perfect way for me to interact with music. But my most listened to song of all time, uh, thank God, this doesn't include Queen when I was a kid would uh, be <laughs> embarrassing, but is a song called The Pharaohs um, from Nico Case's album Middle Cyclone uh, and I have listened to that song 235 times, <laughs> which doesn't sound like a lot I guess, but that was probably most of those listens were in the space of the first year or two yeah. that I had it. Um, I think, yeah, she sort of emotionally I think means more to me than anyone, probably apart from
4: Bonnie
1: Prince Billy. Mm. Um, I, I find I, I'm, I sort of grew up being really touched by that sort of um, alt Americana type stuff as well. I always loved Bonnie Prince Billy and the band actually as well. I mean, I know mm. it was later on, but I remember seeing The Last Waltz. I think my dad taped it off the TV when I was like 12. And I watched it and I watched it and I watched it. And then I dragged all my friends home from school. And I was like, oh, my God, look at this. There's something very authentic about it and you put it so beautifully when you talk about when when the words are just kind of slightly out of your out of your reach of understanding but you kind of get them anyway you feel understood um by the artists I completely relate to that and I find that uh, I find that a lot listening to Bonnie Prince Billy growing up as well same kind of thing um but I feel like I read recently that Nico Case lives does she didn't she, like, semi-retire from music and she lives on a farm now? Am I making
5: that up? I don't think she retired. She, she. I think she had a case of writer's block and then her studio burnt down. Oh, shit. No. So she had a sort of enforced break, I think. Okay. Um, she, uh, she, I think she's touring, because she's in The New Pornographers as well. Mm. And she's touring with The New Pornographers at the minute. And I saw her last... At the Union Chapel, uh, probably about four years ago, and I saw her warm-up show in the Lexington. Yeah. For that, which there was only about 120 people there, which was amazing. Even though yeah. a guy ruined it by doing terrible farts right in front
6: of no! me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. All the I was just to do that. Oh, I was just
5: imagining. I
0: because I love the Union Chapel. It's such a beautiful place to hear hear someone play. Um, and uh, i was i was thinking about that like, you know these nice quiet shared moments and then, <laughs> now the guy the thought of that guy just letting one go in front of you that's that's oh. bad
5: it wasn't Thank one you. it was it was in the hundreds and oh, no. people started talking about it so much that he left um, okay <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was quite extraordinary um, we've got a long standing
0: problem with people talking during gigs yeah. but if they're talking because someone's farting so much that it's actually <laughs> conversation worthy i think we've reached a new level
4: yeah
5: i mean the the song that i've picked star witness just as an example of those lyrics Mm. it begins um my true love drowned in a dirty old pan of oil that had run from the block of a falcon sedan 1969 the Mm. paper said 75 i mean that why say that they got the year of the car wrong in the newspaper. It's such a fantastic detail. Mm. There's something so authentic about that, that. It's sort of, that's like what you would, it's a weird detail you'd get in a novel.
1: Yeah, it's very literary.
5: And then, uh, trees break the sidewalk and the sidewalk skins my knee. There's glass in my thermos and blood on my jeans. Nickels and dimes of the 4th of July, growing off in a crooked line to the chain lots where the red tails dive. Mm. Oh how I'd forgot what it's like. Oh, that's, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's amazing, <laughs> but I don't know why that's amazing. But get, a... I'm going to get on the whole
0: discography of this this woman. She sounds brilliant.
5: Mm. It's such a it's such a perfect poetic image. Mm. The trees breaking the sidewalk. Everyone knows what that's like when the roots mm. of a tree push up the tarmac. Mm.
0: Yeah,
5: and then falling over, and she's dropped her thermos. That's a superb poetic verse, mm-hmm. because you're making so many of the connections in your head. Yeah. Oh, man, I love her to bits. Yeah. If I met her, I think I'd explode or burst into flames <laughs> or something. Yeah,
0: well, that is always an interesting question, like whether, you, whether you meet your heroes or not. And I am a bit like you. I, I, would, I would melt and become a bit of a useless fording tool if I was to meet some of my heroes. But you did get to interview um, Queen, did you not?
5: Well, I've been very, very lucky. My, I signed for an agent about 10 years ago who I'm no longer with, but they still do my tours. And they also uh, do Queen's live stuff. Uh-huh. And um, so I've met Brian May four or five times, interviewed him three or four times, uh, interviewed him in person once, and I, I think that did teach me that when you do meet someone who you really, really admire, don't try to communicate <laughs> <laughs> a more than that you do. Mm-hmm. Don't try and get into why because it's impossible. It also puts up a big barrier between you because, and I know this from you know on a much much smaller scale from people who like my stand-up. There's a sort of tension. It's like I'm embarrassed by compliments. Mm, I don't take mm. compliments very well. So, but it's really nice when someone says, I love your podcast or, you know, Mm. that your stand up show meant a lot to me. That's great. But when someone is trying and failing to express (laughs) too much. Yeah. So I never tried to do that with Brian. I've also met Body Prince Billy twice. Wow. But very, very briefly, I've got a photo of me with him at a gig from years and years ago which I really like Um, but I do think if I met Nico Case I would just start to cry and that would not help anyone. (laughs) That probably happens to her a lot though to be fair you can imagine (laughs) I I don't know what her fan base is like Like, I could spot a Queen fan at 50 yards Mm. because they would have they'd be wearing a Queen coat they'd made themselves (laughs) they're quite unique in that sense Queen fans Mm. Yeah. Um, I could spot a Bonnie Prince Billy fan because they'd be wearing a a plaid shirt and black rimmed glasses, <laughs> and they would have a beard and probably be going a bit bald. Mm. Um, I don't know if I could spot an Eco Case fan.
1: John, it's such a pleasure to talk about music with you. Thank you so much for, for going through all of that with us. Yeah, and um, yeah. listen, when, is, when does your tour start? Presumably, you have to write the second half of it first, although at least you have the music sorted out.
5: Yes, uh, first half is done, second half TBC. Uh, it's called Howl mm-hmm. and it starts in September 2023. Um, and I'll be doing something in Edinburgh in August to prepare, but I don't quite know what yet. Mm. Um, and it goes all over the shop, really. You can um, find out uh, ticket links at johnrobins.com website which claims i'm a tv regular
0: <laughs> <laughs> so that, listen if you if you will it it'll happen that's, that's the way i look at these things right. thanks well, so much john it's great great talking to you really yeah great.
5: thank you so much and if if just one person buys fox confessor brings the flood after listening but, to this uh, I will that's very, what i'm going to do happy. Happy. Right, gonna now, <laughs> right now right now
0: listener thank you so much for listening today that's your job you listen we talk and that's how we like it and if you did like it why not share this little moment of joy that brightens up your Thursday mornings uh, with a friend or even with a stranger just share it with anyone we're not fussy we just want people to listen to this lovely podcast so go out there like subscribe and tell someone about the wonderful world of what goes around what are you building in there
1: (laughs) I'm trying to do it subtly. <laughs> <laughs> like and subscribe.
6: There's glass in my thermos, blood on my jeans nickels